So this morning we're going to be going through the book of Jude. Uh, this is, uh, you know, go all the way to the right, that's Revelation, then back a book, that's Jude. But before um, we jump into that, I want to say a little bit about where we're heading next. As uh, many of you may have already heard, that we're going to be studying uh, Psalms. And um, uh, you'll see in today's study in Jude that uh, the writers of the New Testament uh, were very informed about everything that was going on and everything that had been written in the Old Testament. And um, pulling all that together in one story is one of the great things about uh, Christianity uh, because it sees the New Testament as a continuum of that. So by way of example, and to show you some of the types of things that we'll be doing in Psalms, uh, I'll read briefly from Matthew 21, which has to do with Palm Sunday, which is today, of course. Matthew 21, 6 says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That Hosanna that they were applying to Jesus, it just so happens comes from the Psalms. Psalm 118 verse 26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, very often in the New Testament, uh, brief references to a particular verse would call to mind the entire chapter. And it just so happens that this is the chapter that says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Then blessed is the name of the Lord. I'm sorry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us, buying the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So here we have this reference on Palm Sunday, all the way back to Psalm 118. And you pull it forward to the New Testament and it just takes on an entirely new significance and meaning. For next week, look at Psalm 16. And look at it in light of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Okay, so that's, that'll be our, our text. And let me double check and make sure that I've got it right. But th this is, um, I think, going to be really fun uh, looking at that. Yes, I think that's... Yeah, I have to, it's 16. I had to double check and looked at so many to make sure that it's not 18. Yeah, it's 16. Psalm 16 and Acts chapter 2. All right, so there's a little, a little taste and a little preview. Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, 
Beloved, in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This greeting um, sets it up in the form of a, a, a message. Uh, this was considered what was called a Catholic letter, meaning uh, it was uh, to a group of churches, not to just one specific church like so many of uh, uh, Paul's letters were. Uh, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Some translations say a slave of Jesus Christ. And it's kind of interesting, back in the day, if you said that you were a slave to someone, uh, kind of voluntarily, it meant that you were fully devoted, but it also had connotations that uh, you were kind of um, a leader in that household, uh, a chief slave. And so here, Jude is identifying as a slave of Jesus Christ, but also claiming a little bit of authority to speak to them. Now, we know that Jude was the half-brother of Jesus, probably his littlest half-sibling or youngest half-sibling. Uh, and uh, we know that prior to the resurrection, uh, Jesus you know, uh, the, his, his, his siblings weren't really believing what was going on. But after the resurrection, of course, they did. Um, and it goes on and says, and the brother of James, who wrote our book of James. Uh, we know that, that Jude um, uh, had some authority in the early church. And even uh, extra writers show that even by the time his grandchildren came around, they were holding leadership positions in the Jerusalem church. Okay, so he just started a legacy of, of being sold out uh, for Jesus. Uh, beloved, beloved in God the Father. He's reminding them that they are loved, that they are beloved of God, but he's also using it as a term of endearment to the people that he's writing with. So, um, Beloved, remember that you are loved by God, but also this is a term uh, saying that he loves them as well. So this is interesting. Verse three, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. He had a letter in mind that, that probably was going to be a totally different tone. I want to talk to you about how great our salvation is and to celebrate the things that we have in Christ and uh, perhaps our unity as believers and all that sort of stuff. But current events made him change his mind. Instead, he has to write a different letter. And we're going to get into the meat of that in a moment. But if there's a, if there's a, a theme phrase in Jude, uh, it's this to contend for the faith. Um, throughout the New Testament, we hear a lot about faith, and it's usually in the context of uh, putting your faith in Christ and, and having faith and that sort of thing. But a few places in Scripture, the faith was used to describe this new way. In fact, you remember at one point it was called the way. Uh, this, this new way of you know, now that Jesus had been resurrected and in light of the cross, everything in the Old Testament was starting to make sense. And this was a, a new faith, a, a, just a fledgling 
way of seeing the world in, in light of Jesus' resurrection. So when Jude says, contend for the faith, the faith is this early Christianity. Uh, as, as new as it was, as, as potent as it was, uh, but also as um, uh, already under, under attack. And that's what we'll see here. Uh, he wants to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And basically, uh, most commentators say um, Jude is not calling for, you know, shore things up and be ready to defend your faith. He's basically saying go to war for your faith. He, this is a call to action. This, he's wanting to go on offense, not defense. All right? So that's a concept. Verse 3, in the lead up to 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So here's the problem. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. So these are false teachers. These are false prophets. And these are not people who are outside the church. These are people who have infiltrated into these gatherings, into the local churches. And that's the nature of the evil one working against us is at times will infiltrate an already established work of God. And that's what's happening here. They were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. There were people who, hearing that this is a way of grace and not a way of the law, took that to such an extreme to say, oh, we're not under the law anymore. We can do whatever we want. We can practice whatever abominable practices we want because it's all grace, it's all fine, and used that grace as an excuse for some translations say lasciviousness. This is sexual sin, basically. Sensuality is what the ESV says. So one thing that we're doing was using this distorted I hesitate to call it the gospel, but this distorted way of looking at things, basically just to allow themselves some excuse for their own perverted desires, and in doing so, deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about this, as we go through things, I think it's fair, and, and many people who do this today, who um, uh, there are many uh, false teachings out there who claim to have some connection with historic Christianity, right? But many of them have been perverted. And the classic example that fits with this is the Mormons. Um, Max was uh, here and, and knew we were heading to Jude, and um, he pointed out there was he'd been listening to this guy who was talking about Mormonism and referenced Jude as hey, this is why I'm contending for the faith, because of how crazy the Mormons were. And that's what was going on, right? You had Joseph Smith, 
this weird religion, changing. It says they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The Latter-day Saints and Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, wow, when they talk about Jesus, they're not talking about our Jesus. When they talk about God, they're not talking about our God. But if you're not up to speed, it can sound so good and they can be so nice, right? But one of his, one of Joseph Smith's uh, reasons for changing all this was so he could have all these extra wives, including many who were as young as 14, right? Um, I found out that um, there are three people who testified that uh, these golden plates that he supposedly received from the angel up in New York, um, there are three people who testified about these to say they were authentic. Uh, one of them was Joseph Smith. One of them uh, recounted that, you know, he said, no, I didn't do that. And the other one was shacking up with somebody um, at the time that he did this. And his, his other wife wasn't so happy about it. So he wasn't a very reliable witness either. Uh, but these three are listed in the Book of Mormon as why you should believe it. Yeah, not very convincing. But this is what, this is what many false teachers will do. They have to start to attack Jesus because of everything he was and he stood for. You have to attack him too. Verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, I don't know how many of you have um, uh, read ahead, but it's going to get weird. All right, there are going to be references to things, some of which are familiar and some of which aren't familiar. And, and it can change how you look at things. Now, how many people have lived in this area for, say, less than four or five years? Okay. So, let's say, but I'll pick on you. Let's say I'm down in Charleston, I'm talking with somebody, and I'm on my way, I, I tell them, you know, I'm going to drive back to, to Lancaster, and I'm going to go through Elgin and get some barbecue and then come back to Lancaster. Where's Elgin? <laughs> so you might say, well, where's Elgin? And if you looked it up on Google Maps, it would show this city to the east side of Columbia, and you might go to Google Maps and see, okay, where's this barbecue place Art's talking about that's in Elgin? Now, to those of you that have been here a long time, what was I really talking about? There's a small Elgin about five miles between here and He Springs, and a couple times a year, the fire department puts on a big barbecue. And if you want some, go Friday, because it'll be gone by Saturday. What's the difference? One group of people knew the thing I was referencing, one people didn't, okay? So that's going to happen here. Now, Jude likes to do things in triplets. So we're going to hear, hear like three examples of this and three examples of that and three examples of this other thing. And so he is launching right now into this big concept that God punishes people who get it wrong. That's the big idea. Verse 5, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt 
afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, there are very few differences between the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Version. I consider them the two most authoritative word-for-word translations. Uh, The New American says, you'll remember that the Lord saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Some of the earliest manuscripts, and some people argue some of the better manuscripts, actually say Jesus took the people out of the land of Egypt. So this is really interesting because this would be an amazing verse to uphold the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Because now you're ascribing something to Jesus that the Old Testament talks about um, either God or in some places the angel of God, which it was the angel of God in the burning bush. Some people think that that was Jesus, okay? So there are Old Testament references to, to Jesus and there's pretty good manuscript evidence that this is one of them uh, in the New Testament. In any event, Jude's point wasn't that God rescued people out of the land of Egypt. His point was some people in this wandering phase didn't believe. Some people rebelled. Some people did bad stuff, and God took them out. That's the point. Verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Everybody know who this is talking about? (laughs) So this is Genesis 6. These angels, or some people say sons of God, these are the ones that, that left, came to earth, procreated with the women, created the Nephilim, the giants, Right? This is, this is Genesis 6 stuff. Right? The, again, it's a whole other topic, but that's what he was referring to. And the point is, they have been kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. They have been put away. Apparently, this was a, a common thing that was referenced as as God had dealt with these people, a lot of people believed that they came to earth, procreated, created this race of giants, uh, taught um, men perverse things that they shouldn't have been taught, and perhaps accelerated how crazy and horrible things got that led up to the flood. Uh, some people blame uh, these angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, and it says God dealt with them. That's example number two. Example number three, verse seven. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. God pays attention and he's going to bring judgment. Now, verse eight talking a little bit more about some of the things that these false teachers do. Yet, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, in other words, these weird visions that they have had, which, to carry our Mormon illustration through, do you know how things went crazy, right? He said he had a dream, and this angel, ironically called Moroni, um, 
uh, tells him to go out in the hills of New York and dig up these um, plates of gold. Um, one interesting tidbit I heard was uh, somebody calculated with all the writing that it took to write all these plates of gold and as thin as you could make the gold and still have things not be so fragile as gold leaf, the whole thing would still weigh 200 pounds. But yet he's described as prancing and leaping over, you know, objects and everything, running all the way into town. And uh, trust me, I, I've carried a 35-pound backpack and <laughs> you don't prance over anything, um, let alone with 200 pounds. In any event, it gets funny. But all that started with a dream, right? So just because they dream dreams doesn't mean they're true. All right, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh. That's one thing they do. Reject authority. That's the second thing they do. And blaspheme the glorious ones. All right, here's our examples. Verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment but said, the Lord rebuke you. Like I said, it's got, it, got, it gets weird, right? So everybody remember this story? No, because we don't have it. This is all we have of the story. Now, what do we know about Moses, right? Moses was on the brink of going into the promised land. We know he wasn't going to be able to go into the promised land. Uh, it says he died and Basically, God buried him, and no one knows where he was buried. That's, that's what Deuteronomy says. Well, what about this thing? So we think this comes from some writing. Um, uh, there's fragments of something either called the Testament of Moses or the Book of Moses, some, some books that were written somewhere between Malachi and Matthew, that intertestamental period. Uh, 400 years, there were still writings going on. Uh, we don't consider that they were scripture, but there were still some writings going on, some of which uh, most authorities say is, is worth a little study because if nothing else, it tells you how they were handling their Bible. What, what themes were they focused on? Um, uh, you know, how were they grappling with scripture? What was going on and so forth? But anyway, the story um, is all we have is this right here. Some people have tried to suggest that it went something like this, that after Moses died, Satan wanted the body because Moses was a murderer and Satan said, I have the right to that. Michael says, no, he's our prophet. You don't get to have him and so on and so forth. But the point is that even though Satan was in the wrong, even Michael didn't go so far as to speak a judgment against Satan, he stayed in his place and said, the Lord was going to rebuke you. So these false teachers, one of the things they're doing is they are assuming responsibility for themselves that should only be reserved for the Lord. Does that make sense? So the, the big idea isn't what Michael and Satan were up to, which is kind of fascinating to think about, the point is, Michael stayed in his lane. But uh, Zechariah three, uh, mm -hmm. verses one and two says, uh, "Then he showed Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand, accused him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you.'" 
Yeah, this is the other passage where uh, we find uh, this phrase, the Lord rebuke. And uh, the difference is, um, one, God saying it in the Zechariah passage, and in this place, Michael is saying it. But yeah, that is really the only other passage we have that uses that phrasing. Verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. So here we're going to get some more examples. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So here we have three more references. The way of Cain. We've talked about this a little bit in the past, and uh, we know Cain was a murderer um, and became, through the Old Testament days and, and, and the teachings that the, um, the rabbis and so forth, uh, anytime they wanted to, to kind of bring up the idea of someone who was evil and someone who was corrupt, you just referenced Cain and everybody knew what you were talking about. Okay, so you just think of some evil person, and people do it today, right? If they want to say something's really horrible, what, who do they reference? Hitler. Hitler, right? So we do that today. If we want to just have somebody bring to mind something's really horrible, we say, "Oh yeah, like Hitler." Well, back then it was like, "Oh yeah, like Cain. He's gone the way of Cain," right? So that's example number one. Number two, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. So, Balaam, uh, many of you know this story. It comes from Numbers. It's worth reading about. This is the, um, there was the, um, uh, Israel had invaded some land, of course. The people that were uh, being threatened uh, knew that there was a religious thing going on. They said, I don't know what I'll do. I'll go buy a prophet, and we'll put some curses against the Israelites. So, Balaam was prophet, soothsayer, fortune teller sort of person, and um, says, hey, I want to hire you to go curse the Israelites. And he said, oh, I can't do that, you know, because the Lord's with them. And um, the king says, well, I'll pay you. And he said, no, I can only, uh, no, I can't really do that. Lord's, Lord's with them. And then he says, I'll pay you a lot. <laughs> and he says, well, no, I really, I really shouldn't do that. And but you could kind of tell reading between the lines that he really wanted to do it. Anyway, the Lord comes to him and says, "Okay, you can go, but you can only say what I tell you." So he winds up going. Now it says God still wasn't happy that he was going, but he's going. God wants to prevent him. This is a story you remember where uh, he's on his donkey and she, um, the donkey that is, sees the angel blocking the way and goes off to the side and. Balaam wonders what's going on with this donkey and beats her, and this happens three times. Uh, unbeknownst to Balaam, uh, the donkey is seeing the angel of the Lord blocking the way with a big sword. Um, and finally, the donkey gets a human voice and tells Balaam, why are you beating me? And now, he, it's, like I said, it's a great story. Anyway, he makes, it to, he makes it to the king's place, and he wants him to curse and he comes out with this amazing blessing for the people of Israel. And the king says, this isn't what I paid for. Um, so he said, let me take you to a different place. Let's try again. He does this three times. Each time gives this amazing prophecy. So, so far, it sounds really good. Like he's sticking up for the, for the, the Lord, but yet he still got paid. Well, we find out later 
But that money eventually took effect, and he didn't prophesy against the nation, but he told the king, you want to bring these people down? Send a bunch of your women over there. And that'll take them down. And sure enough, uh, Moses had the clean house of about 20-some thousand people um, who had fornicated with this, this, these other women. So anyway, gone the way, it says in, in Jude, he, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. In other words, these false teachers have, have they know enough about the Lord to be responsible, but they've forsaken that because they're going to make some money off of it. And they'll do it knowing that they're attacking God's people. And then finally, there was a group that perished in Korah's rebellion. So this is another story. There were about 250 people who gathered together and wanted to rebel against Moses. Uh, That didn't go well. They were swallowed up uh, by the earth. Uh, But those were Jude's examples of false prophets, people who were coming up against God's way of doing things and God's anointing. Verse 12, here's a warning. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. They feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves and so forth. I'll go into that. Hidden reefs. These are rocks below the surface of the water. These are things that you don't really know are coming unless you're being careful. They are going to trip you up. They're going to rip out the bottom of your boat and you're not going to be happy. But they're at your love feast. This, this is a, a reference to a, a situation. You could have what we call the Lord's Supper. You could have communion where you would have the bread and the wine. Right? Do this in remembrance of me. But every so often, they would do it in the terms of a full meal. Back in the day, we would say we're having a fellowship. What we really meant was we're having food. Right? Um, but back then, you could have communion either with or without the love feast which is where there was going to be more food. These people are so comfortable, they're coming to your love feast, right? There's there's stuff going on below the surface that will trip you up. Be careful. Who are these people? They're shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. Late autumn, your tree should have fruit. Nope. Twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. These are not good people. Now we have another odd reference. Verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. What's the big idea of that verse? They are ungodly. It says it so many times. So what's this Enoch thing? So there was a book of Enoch. Uh, This was from the first book of Enoch. This is one of those... Um, books that was uh, written um, in that intertestamental time frame, what we would call the Apocrypha, or some people call the Pseudo-Epigrapha. Um, so people say, well, why is Jude quoting this? Does that mean he's saying that the book of Enoch is Scripture? 
and therefore maybe it should be in the canon. Or some people say, hey, he's quoting this other thing that's not scripture. Maybe Jude shouldn't be in the canon, right? Well, they say, no, he was just quoting a piece of that, a piece of Enoch, perhaps saying that Enoch got this part right. He's not testifying that the whole book was accurate or the whole book is scripture. Uh, he's making a point. And some people say, well, it's just like if you would, you're trying to make a true point using a story that everybody knows, right? It's like if we made a story about the boy who cried wolf. We don't know who that boy was. We don't know if there was a boy. It's a story that we used to make a point. People reference the Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. You know, you could come up with any story, and as long as your audience knows the story, then it becomes useful to make a point, right? And that's kind of what we're dealing with here. What about these people? Verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. You could go back and look at many of the people who have had popular followings, usually with some downfall, often of a sexual or um, financial, you know, root, you know, sin, and and you could fit them in this category. People causing trouble, people trying to bring down authentic Christianity. Uh, these are the people that we had to, to work against. When we read in the Gospels about uh, Jesus being the good shepherd, and the good shepherd looks after his sheep and, and is careful that some other bad shepherd doesn't come in, right? This is what we're talking about. You've got to be careful for these people. Verse 17, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. We often quote this passage from Second Peter, and it's good sometime if you'll, after you're, have read through Jude a couple times, go back and read Second Peter. And you'll find, as most commentators believe, that much of Second Peter was fueled by Jude's letter. That Peter had probably Jude's letter and said, you know what? Absolutely. Absolutely. And he took his letter, um, added to it, and further distributed it. Uh, so much of Second Peter is drawn from Jude and this concept about in the last days there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And we see this today, right? And it's interesting, and I think Dad alluded to this last week, that we idealize the early New Testament church. And how many, and don't get me wrong, very well-meaning, very well-meaning um, Christians have said, you know, we want to go back to the old days. We want to make it like it was in the New Testament, um, where everybody was doing it right and all things were good. And, and we just have this picture. But it was brand new. There were still people alive who knew Jesus and knew the, the, the truth of things. And there were people who had probably still been resurrected that were still walking around. And even then, false teachers 
were so smooth that they could come in and steer people away. Even then, the latter verses um, we'll, we'll move on. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building up yourselves in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So he's bringing it back, saying, go back to the basics. Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Pray. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Um, Remember the love of God and so forth. And then it says in verse 22, what to do with people who are wavering. Let's look out for these people. It says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. In other words, you know, when, when you see, say, a Jehovah's Witness person or a Mormon or maybe someone who's raised Catholic and you're not sure they're even saved. These are not our enemies. These are people that we want to, to snatch them out of the fire. We want to persuade them, right? We want to bring them into the true faith in whatever winsome way we can do. So that means we need to, we need to educate ourselves. And, and, and they're, they're might seem as our adversaries and certainly you want to, to have your, your guard up, but you also want to be able to to bring them into the fold if if the Holy Spirit is is drawing them. And then I'll close with this. It's a just a, a doxology. It's an amazing prayer. It's often used. Um, if you're ever asked to pray at the end of any service, just remember these verses, and you'll sound amazing. <laughs> Pro tip. Here we go. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. All right, that's Jude. Comments? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are all those things, that you care about us, you want us to be um, confident in our faith, you want us to have an awareness of those who are struggling, you want us to have an awareness of those who might be infiltrating with false motives. Help us to properly contend for the faith, and we thank you so much for being a part of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.